0: Welcome to Taking Care, a podcast of opera and the National Boards. I'm Susan Bigger, and today I have Dr. Gerald Hickson with me. Hi, Jerry.
1: Susan, it's great to be here with you today.
0: Thank you. Where are you from, Jerry? So
1: I'm living in Nashville, Tennessee, have been there 40 years at Vanderbilt University, uh, School of Medicine. It's just a great place and love to have people visit Nashville.
0: Fantastic. You've been integrally involved in the patient safety movement for over the past 25 years, really. What important changes have you seen in patient safety?
1: When I first entered medicine 40-plus years ago, we really didn't recognize the magnitude of the challenge that we've had to face. So, number one, we're recognizing now that medicine always can be better. Uh, I'm both an optimist but also a realist, and so I'm never quite happy with performance but know that we're a lot better now than we've been. Uh, Years ago, we didn't recognize so many things that we know are absolutely preventable now, certain kinds of infections, infections, pressure injuries, things that we just took for granted when I was in training. They just were going to happen, and now we know that's not true. And so we've done some great work in these areas, but there's always work to do.
0: Absolutely. You speak about the identification of clinicians, and so doctors and other health professionals, who are particularly high risk for patients. I wonder if you can give us some idea of what that looks like.
1: Well, Susan, that's a great question. And I think that most individuals who are at one time or another high risk look just like everyone else. Mm-hmm. The challenge is it's mostly their behavior and performance in the workplace. And so what we've learned over the years is that most individuals are outstanding when they walk into work in whatever role in professionalism they may have. All of us on occasion have a bad day. And if we're in a right environment with the right culture, we want individuals to provide kind, respectful feedback early and often, and we find that in most circumstances that's sufficient. Unfortunately, there's a small percentage of individuals, and we know now by tracking uh, clinicians in the U.S. now for approaching 20 years, that just under 3% will model patterns of behavior and performance inconsistent with our expectation for performance. But the good news is that if we can get individuals to provide feedback again to those individuals early, most of them will get the message and transform their practices in ways that align with what our professional expectations are. Now, unfortunately, at less than a half of 1%, we find individuals that are unable or unwilling to respond to feedback. And in those circumstances, we need to be sure that for the protection of themselves, the rest of the culture, others that they work with, that we provide clear, defined requirements to improve their performance so that they can uh, maintain their professional role or in circumstances where illness or other things may be affecting them, where there is the recognition that there needs to be limitations of practices or no practice at all.
0: That's really interesting. So once these, let's say, doctors are, you know, identified, um, can you talk a little bit more about some of, the, some of the successful, what we might call, I guess, intervention strategies that tend to work?
1: Of the 3% that may be identified with a pattern, uh, we find that over 80% of them will respond if an organization, a practice, has a plan. And it's not done on an ad hoc basis, but it becomes a part of who all of the medical professionals are. It's a part of their team's performance. And so, Susan, what we've learned, and you're talking to a pediatrician, it's about providing feedback early. When I was in training back 40 years ago, there would always be clinicians that everyone knows that Dr. Hickson had been behaving that way for 20 years. That's not the way we approach the challenge. Within the institutions that we work with in the U.S., and now over 200, our principle is that when we see evidence of behaviors that are not consistent with who we aspire to be, that a peer provides feedback, and I think it's really important, Susan, that that feedback is provided by a peer, not a leader, not someone who has uh, given a job to do that task, but somebody who may also be on the res- receiving end of a complaint, mm. And we found that peers are so effective in sort of removing the fighting, encouraging the probability that the individuals simply reflect on their own behavior and performance. And we found that physicians, nurses, advanced practice professionals, nurse midwives are all reflective if we give them an opportunity. And if they, in fact, reflect, they self-regulate. And that is what creates sustained performance over time.
0: How do you get peers to want to do this because I can think that some people would think oh that's a bit intimidating or I'm not sure I want to have that conversation or that's a bit frightening.
1: When we started this work at Vanderbilt back in the mid-90s one of the real questions that we had to ask is could we in fact find individuals that would volunteer for this role Mm. and what we've learned is that if an organization is really committed to the pursuit of professionalism and the support of professionals who are They will, in fact, allow the professionals to run the process of regulation if they will be sure that there is adequate and viable data that makes the convincing argument that you, Susan, for some reason, appear to stand out. And if you will train them how to sit down and have these conversations, not as fighting. I'm not here when I come and knock on your door, Susan, to tell you how you have to change. My goal is to be sure that you have an opportunity to reflect upon your performance, wonder why, see comparison data to others who are in exactly the same kinds of of practice that you are, who are performing without difficulty. And that sort of challenge is often sufficient. Uh, And we find that some of our best messengers are individuals who effectively are graduates of the program. Now, a couple other comments about how to get uh, peer messengers. So you better create a plan. You better support them. But the training also has to give them an opportunity to reflect whether they really want to be a part of this or not. So three times uh, in our training of peer messengers, we tell them, you don't really want to do this. (laughs) Now, even though we say that with a little humor, we really are serious. And if we find individuals are struggling with it, we tell them it's fine uh, but we want to be sure that we have individuals that are willing to go in and knock on doors and share, at times, sensitive information with colleagues mm-hmm. uh, in a hope that they will understand and respond.
0: And are those people usually based in the same healthcare setting? So, for instance, they work at the same hospital, they work in the same dental practice, that kind of thing. You try to get sort of get them filtered or, or scattered around the whole system? In
1: our early studies, we actually looked at what factors would best promote success, and what we found is that individuals that are as close as they can be to the same age, gender, discipline of practice, same area, as long as they're not conflicts of interest or other reasons that would exclude the individual, Uh, if they're in a competitive practice, then obviously uh, that has to be excluded, but you want those peers to be peers, uh, this pediatrician has sat down with neurosurgeons and shared information. But you can imagine that the first pushback is, well, what do you really know about my practice? And the answer is nothing. <laughs> I do know that for some reason there are challenges here. But that's not as effective as having a peer sit down and have that same conversation. Now, that's also, Susan, not to say that there isn't a role for leadership And so if individuals are unable or unwilling to self-regulate, then there's a time and place to bring the designated leader into the process who now is no longer asking the individual to self-reflect. We now are in a process of trying to understand why this particular professional is having a challenge. Maybe it's something about the way that the practice is organized. There may be illness. There may be a host of other issues going on with this human we just want to be sure that we maximize the chance that the clinician is successful and therefore their practice in service of others.
0: You, you spoke a few minutes ago about the role of, um, of culture. How can behaviors that undermine a culture of safety be addressed?
1: One of the things that we learned are that the eyes and ears of other professionals see slips and lapses in care delivery. So if we decide that we want to have a timeout prior to a surgical procedure, to be sure that we have the right patient, right site. That's a reasonable thing to do. Perish the notion, on occasion, some of our surgeons are in a hurry. There may be other forces that are pushing them to move along, and there may not be a full pause and a right practice of something that we know promotes safety. That is both an unprofessional behavior. It is not respectful of what we know constitutes best practices. And a culture of safety is one in which others within that surgical theater will say, Susan, time out. This is important. It's something we're collectively committed to. And we want individuals in those circumstances to speak up twice. And sometimes that's not sufficient at which we want to be sure that individuals have an opportunity to escalate Concerns about that unsafe behavior and performance act to uh, either an event reporting system or someone up the chain of command so that we can begin to provide feedback to that individual early and often, what we call a cup of coffee, a non judgmental, respectful sharing about a disturbance. Uh, And again, the success of that process, it works really well if people will do it, but they won't do it without a true culture of safety. Now, I would also like to say if individuals are unwilling to do that, either to speak up or report, then we need to work on that culture of safety. Mm, You have to get that first. It really is the litmus test.
0: I'd like to just switch, Jerry, for a minute to thinking from the patient perspective about safety. You've looked at um, educational initiatives um, to promote open disclosure. I wonder if you can talk a bit about open disclosure and what you fo- have found.
1: Open disclosure is really a fundamental element of being a professional. When we think about technical and cognitive competence, that's a part of the practice of medicine. But medicine also involves clear and effective communication, especially in circumstances where there are adverse outcomes. Mm. And so one of our uh, sets of our early studies were focused on interviews with families who unfortunately had faced an and experience a bad outcome related to a pregnancy. And we wanted to learn how families first heard about the fact that things were not as anticipated. And we found that, gosh, as professionals, we were doing an inconsistent job that we often did not share clearly or effectively. It's important to recognize that sharing in and around a time of a medical error is tough for everyone. But the first priority has to be the patient and family and their need for information. Mm -hmm. And so those studies led us to develop a curriculum in disclosure uh, that we feel very strongly about. There are those circumstances in which there are obvious errors that have caused harm. And in those circumstances, we are committed to complete full disclosure and to do those things that we can do to make as right as possible for the families about their circumstances. One of the things we've learned, though, is that so often I become aware at 6 a.m. in the morning that there is an adverse outcome, but I may not fully understand what has gone on. And so as a part of the curriculum, we want our nurses, physicians, all that may be engaged to understand that disclosure is also a process that takes place over time. It is what I know now, which I want to share with families. So not just sitting down once. It is to pledge to them that as we learn more, what is our process of seeking to understand? And that as information becomes available, we will sit down and fully disclose to them. And so often we may find in the process of that assessment an error that needs to be disclosed. We may find there's been no error that needs to be disclosed. But it's also important to understand all of the team members need to be a part of that disclosure process, and it is not complete until we've completed the informational needs of the family and, again, attempt to do right in those circumstances where we have caused harm.
0: To really build trust with them where that's been really threatened.
1: And, Susan, it is a process that takes time. Mm. And when I walk in to share with a, patient, uh, with a family, a patient, that we have caused harm, and I have apologized, the family will hear me, but they are going to see how I respond over the next days and weeks to see whether or not that apology is genuine and sincere because it, again, is something that requires time to regain and reestablish that trust that's so critical.
0: Looking at why patients and families do complain, and sometimes they out with legal action, sometimes they don't, what Can you tell us about what you know about, about why people do complain?
1: Individuals walk into our health systems in anticipation of outcomes with fear, with a lack of understanding, with the differences between knowledge of uh, medical professionals, families. All of those things create potential barriers to communication. More than anything else, I think patients and families want to feel respected in the process. And we find that when patients and families do not feel that respect, then that's one of the things that leads to dissatisfaction, appropriately so. Patients and families uh, cut us a lot of slack. But at some point, patients and families will have an experience that does not meet or exceed their expectations, and they may feel the need to complain. We as a research team were just uh, stumbled into the fact that a fair number of patients at Vanderbilt communicated their dissatisfaction to an office of patient relations, which we find so important. In promoting safety within our health systems, because they would record those stories. And when we did our first studies, we discovered that there were some 12,000 of those studies at Vanderbilt, and we had dealt with each one of those complaints one at a time. But as a research team, we said, I wonder if we look at those 12,000 complaints, if they're common themes that we then can address, if there are individuals that show up in those complaints more than others. And that led to a series of studies that uh, we have uh, been working on now for 20 years to show that a small subset of clinicians, and now we know nurses and advanced practice professionals, somewhere between 4 to 6% will get more than their fair share of patient complaints. We know that those same clinicians are much more likely to be sued in men-mal claims And now our most recent studies that show that if you do see a surgeon, as an example, that gets more than their fair share of patient complaints, you are more likely to have surgical site infections. You're more likely to have to be readmitted to the hospital. You're more likely to have to be reintubated in a host of other medical complications. Now, Susan, it raises a question. Why does an observation about respect or the lack thereof made by a patient have anything to do with what goes on in an operating theater? Well, the answer to that is that when you really think about the concept of respect, and there's a really great paper by Rishkin. There's a follow-up paper by Katz. If you look at surgical environments where the team members in the OR also don't feel respected, what happens to their team performance? It goes down. It goes down because if I am disrespectful to you, What's your probability that you may raise a concern to me if I happen to be the surgeon in that OR or a neonatologist in an ICU? Pretty low. It's low, and if you recognize you need help, who's the last person you're going to come and ask for? It's you, Jerry. (laughs) And so the challenge here, Susan, is that we wind up in a circumstance in which we have clinicians with great technical and cognitive skill, but medicine is a team activity, including the patient and family. And so everything we do to send a message of respect and to deal with disrespect early and often, the more we protect care delivery, and that's what I think should be the goal of the medical professional.
0: I think it's a really helpful concept to tie together this respect with patient safety. I think it is very um, close together in the mind of patients and families. Maybe there's still some work to do to, to really bring that together in the minds of um, health professionals to understand that those two are very tightly linked.
1: You know, Susan, I, I think that one of the things that's important here is that we, rem- that we recognize that little acts, like washing our hands, is a professional act. And the failure to do so puts patient, family, other coworkers at risk. So in our hand-washing work that we did at Vanderbilt, the fundamental underpinning of that work was that this is a professional act and that we support fellow professionals by encouraging them. Now, if you're that patient in that room, and I come in and I don't stop to foam in or to appropriately desanitize my hand, I put you at risk. And what we've learned is that patients and families see those things. And so, once again, the eyes and ears of patients and families, other staff, provide us often the insight we need to help direct our educational programs. Now, one other comment about education. One of the things that we've also learned is that too often in medicine we train our next generation. But that is a problem because we need to first train the most senior of the profession because if they're not modeling those behaviors, so much education effort goes for naught. Mm -hmm. Will Martinez, one of our faculty members at Vanderbilt who works in our center, did an interesting study looking at the willingness of what we call residents' uh, registrars Mm -hmm. in the practice of medicine and their willingness to disclose a medical error. And what we found is that if the resident had formalized training in disclosure, they were more likely to disclose uh, a medical error. Well, that's good news. To anybody. To anyone. But if they, in fact, had worked with a role model, a senior clinician, who was involved in a case where there was no disclosure, it reduced the positive impact of education. And so how often we train the next generation and then the current generation has a not encouraging impact upon that training. If we're serious about training, we start with the most senior. As they model right behavior and performance, it's so much easier to sustain the education programs to those that are in training.
0: Meaning what you're learning in an education context if it's not modeled in in your actual workplace is very unlikely
1: to stick. That's exactly right.
0: You've also developed, Jerry, a patient advocacy reporting system. Can you tell us something about how that works?
1: We've learned that if we're going to promote professionalism, it needs a comprehensive plan that involves people, process, and systems. Two of the tools that we've developed... What we call the PARS, the Patient Advocate Reporting System, and the Coworker Reporting System, are two tools that support our professionalism work at Vanderbilt and many other institutions. And what we found is that the eyes and ears of patients and families, they're positioned to see things. They see unprofessional acts, whether they are passive-aggressive or passive-aggressive or aggressive behaviors. doesn't really matter, but they observe something that they think is inconsistent with what they expected if they're a patient, or if what we have uh, stated is our core values, if we are a fellow team member. And if those observations are reported into electronic systems, either the patient complaints or the staff complaints, we've learned how to code those stories to identify themes that give insight about the performance of a particular individual. We have uh, approaching 100,000 physicians in this system, which gives us the ability then to Uh, create uh, comparison data so that if I'm an orthopedic surgeon, I uh, can look at some 2,000 other orthopedic surgeons and I can compare my performance on these measures uh, with my my colleagues.
0: On these patient reports? On these
1: patient reports or the staff. And what we find, again, is that uh, most don't get any complaints at all. Uh, Many people will get a complaint or two, but that small subset gets more than their fair share. Those tools become powerful when that peer sits down with that fellow professional to show them where everyone else is, where they may be, give them some themes to think about that seem to be standing out in the minds of others. Now again, data by itself is of no value unless it's coupled with a defined process of escalation. And again, if most individuals respond to that, that's great and they need to be affirmed. For the small subset that don't respond, then there needs to be escalation to other levels of intervention. But again, it's that observation made by patients and families. That is what a culture of safety is when people can speak up. But let's use that data in a way that brings insight to those who often have need.
0: Well, Jerry, thank you so much for this time um, to spend with you. It's nice to hear your accent. It's particularly nice, though, for us to hear this very global perspective on um, patient safety fundamentally important
1: issue for us. Uh, Susan, uh, thank you very much. This was an honour and again uh, it's great to see all of the wonderful work that's going on as we collaborate to make medicine kinder and safer.
0: Thanks for listening to this episode. If you have any comments, questions or suggestions, please get in touch at communications at opera.gov.au. To make sure you hear our upcoming episodes, please subscribe to Taking Care in your podcast player.